Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia. Your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for tuning in to this latest edition of the Palm Beach Chronicles, where we'll be exploring a bit about the man who makes it happen, at least in one phase of its development, Henry Morrison Flagler, industrial Gilded Age money man with a few wives too, all with tragic ends. That's coming in your next episode, but first we have to get to Henry Flagler's Hotels, a scandal about Palm Beach, and its exclusive clubs too. Not Flagler's clubs, the clubs that happen after Flagler. Oh, friends, we're trying to pack it all in this month. Before we begin this episode, I have huge thanks to give to our newest supporters at patreon.com slash done and done. Holy cats. All the good things, y'all. Getting early and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, too. So, so grateful for each and every one of you in my little spyglass here. Whose name do I see? Big, enormous thanks to Nancy P., Sharon D., Corey C., and John M. Amazing, the lot of you. Thank you, friends, and thank you to all of our Done and Done Patreon community. Making my dreams come true, and when we talk about dreams... Henry Flagler has a dream, too, which involves him making even more money, mostly in his retirement years, by bringing railroads, development, and tourism to the state of Florida. Flagler makes the access to get to Florida. Then he's going to build some hotels. People tend to like Palm Beach in the wintertime if you can't afford it. Those hotels must be built by someone There is maybe or is maybe not a story about the builders of those hotels being ousted from Palm Beach in some nefarious circumstances. Even more nefarious, the exclusive clubs. Our man Nick digs into all of it in his investigation to find the real Palm Beach. In this episode, we'll talk about Palm Beach's origins, its scandals, and its private clubs. Let's investigate. through some real basic stuff. This is from the Town of Palm Beach's website. The Beginning. When the first settlers arrived in what was to become Palm Beach, the entire area was known as Lake Worth, named for Major General William Jenkinsworth, who fought in the Second Seminole War. Pioneers struggled to clear land for their houses and to make room for their crops. The first of the permanent pioneers arrived in 1872. According to early settler accounts, Palm Beach received its name from a shipwreck named the Providencia. The ship washed ashore in January 1878 with a load of coconuts bound from Havana to Barcelona. 
early settlers lost no time claiming salvage and planting the coconuts, which were not native to South Florida, in an effort to launch a commercial coconut industry. Few things to unpack here. I love this, the first of the permanent pioneers. Come on, the first settlers. Let's not forget the Native American people who've been living on that land for a very, very long time. Also, apparently 20,000 coconuts smashed onto the shore with the Providencia. So, that's something. Oh, additionally, the ballroom of the Everglades Club, super exclusive club, was constructed to recreate the inner hull of the Providencia ship. Beamed ceilings and everything. We'll get there. Continuing from the town of Palm Beach website. This next little block is called History is a Tourist Location. Word of the area's beauty spread northward, and by 1880, the first hotel, the Coconut Grove House, opened to accommodate tourists. By the early 1890s, the island community was well-established, with several hotels, businesses, and winter residents. The pioneer era ended in 1894 with the opening of Henry M. Flagler's Royal Poinciana Hotel and the arrival of the Florida East Coast Railroad in 1896. The railroad tracks crossed Lake Worth so trains could deliver their passengers directly to the Flagler System Hotels, which included the Palm Beach Inn directly on the ocean, soon renamed the Breakers. There are lots of little bits in this story here. Let's talk about it. Henry M. Flagler is... A name that you should have heard in there, Henry Flagler, he is a big deal to the Gilded Age and a very big deal to Florida. Not just Palm Beach, but St. Augustine, Key West, Miami. Flagler is the one who does bring the Florida East Coast Railway System with goods and people to the state and hello tourism in Florida. Henry Flagler is one of the Standard Oil founders Harkness is another name that you want to remember for that. Henry has a lot of money. He's friends with Rockefeller. He's kind of a big deal industrialist. Again, huge to the state of Florida. Flagler lives up north initially. He's not going to make it down to Florida until his second wife. Henry will have three wives in total and their stories are coming. I'm just trying to keep the lines separated here. Henry Flagler comes to Palm Beach. We've heard about the Vicarage, the home of Douglas Fairbanks Jr. being the third oldest home on the island. The oldest home in Palm Beach is that of Seagull Cottage. Seagull Cottage was built in 1886 by R.R. McCormick. He's a railroad developer from Denver. When Henry Flagler comes to town, Seagull Cottage is the home that Flagler purchases while he is building all things in Palm Beach. It is right next to Seagull Cottage that Henry Flagler builds the first of his resort hotels, the Royal Poinciana. As for Seagull Cottage, in 1984 it was moved and restored by the Preservation Foundation and now serves as the parish house of the Royal Poinciana Chapel. Royal Poinciana Hotel, y'all. First resort hotel, it was located next to Seagull Cottage. This place, six stories, painted yellow and white, 
surrounded by lush gardens facing Lake Worth. The Royal Poinciana opens February 11, 1894, and it is the largest wooden structure in the world at that time. It cost $1 million to build. The Royal Poinciana will accommodate 2,000 guests, and its dining room will seat 1,600. The Royal Poinciana was in use through the 1930 season, although the hotel will be demolished in 1936. The Royal Poinciana is not the only hotel that Henry Flagler builds. The Breakers is a big deal, too. The Breakers opens in 1896. The Breakers will burn down in 1903. The Breakers is then rebuilt, but unfortunately will burn down again in a 1925 fire, which is perhaps the fault of the wife of the then mayor of Chicago. Apparently, Mrs. Mayor left her curling iron plugged in. The Breakers is rebuilt the following year, and again will go on to be legendary. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor favor the Breakers when they stay in Palm Beach. Remember, the Breakers host that 1985 infamous ball with Charles and Diana. The Breakers is one of the most famous hotels in the world for a particular set, and it has certainly shaped Palm Beach through its century-plus of years on the island. The man who is making all this happen, Henry M. Flagler, I need you to remember, friends, hotels do not get built by themselves and neither does a town. There is an urban legend which continues to persist in even our man Nick. Coming to Palm Beach in 1986, here's about this story. Dominic Dunn writes, At the turn of the century, when the first great hotels like the Royal Poinciana and the Breakers were being built to lure the New York and Newport aristocracy to the new winter paradise. They're developed nearby on what is today condominium-lined Sunrise Avenue, a shantytown known as the Sticks, inhabited by the blacks who were brought in to build the hotels. According to local lore, the unsightly community offended the eye of Henry Flagler, known as the founder of Palm Beach and other town fathers. In a magnanimous appearing gesture, they invited the entire population of the Sticks over to West Palm Beach to a circus performance and barbecue, and during their absence, burned the shantytown to the ground. The workers were relocated permanently to West Palm Beach. This event happening or not happening, is very much contested about the town. Augustine.com back in 2012 investigated this event happening or not happening. A lot of mystery here. Reporting from the McClatchy News Service, again, Augustine.com in February of 2012. This article is entitled, Henry Flagler, His Town and the Fire. Few Floridians left as indelible a mark on the peninsula as Henry M. Flagler. The rail, oil, and real estate baron towered over Palm Beach County and has also been called the father of Miami. In 1912, he completed the overseas railroad linking Key West to the mainland. 
its first train rolling into Key West on January 22nd. Although the railroad was torn to pieces by 1935's storm of the century and never rebuilt, the project arguably remains Flagler's most audacious achievement. Its centennial is being celebrated this year with lectures, museum exhibits, and bike rides. But in Palm Beach County, where his 55-room mansion, now a museum, and the breakers are monuments to his vision, a controversy hovers over the tycoon 99 years after his death. In the black community, many believe that Flagler was behind the burning of a dilapidated oceanfront neighborhood known as the Sticks, a haphazard colony that housed many of the black workers who labored on his behalf. It would have been a primitive, illegal version of what later became known as urban renewal. The scorched earth legend has been passed on through generations like an heirloom, and gained currency not long ago in a sensationalized novel. There's simply no way it is true, said Debbie Murray, chief curator of the Palm Beach Historical Society. Would he have problems with his employees? Sure. He was a railroad baron, and they were working in the worst conditions you could possibly imagine, Debbie Murray continues. But I think it's a huge stretch to believe he torched the sticks. One in six Palm Beach County residents are black, and to many of those residents, the assertion that Flagler had a role in the destruction of the sticks in 1912 is not far-fetched, says Leah Gaines, the director of the city's NAACP chapter. From what I've seen in the past, it has never been refuted. When we look at the story of blacks in America, it's been ugly for most of that history but we were able to persist. Here's what most everyone can agree on. In the early 1900s, the area now known as Palm Beach began to evolve from an untamed frontier town into a winter playground for rich snowbirds, thanks to the extension of Flagler's Florida East Coast Railroad down the Atlantic seaboard. During the construction of Palm Beach's first two iconic hotels, the Royal Poinciana and the Breakers, the black labor force needed a place to live, so they created a tent settlement at what is now Sunset and Sunrise Avenues off North County Road. They called it the Sticks because of its, at the time, remote locale, said Jim Ponce, 94-year-old historian at the Breakers. There was no running water, so the raw sewage piled high but it was a close and cheap option for poor blacks who worked in the resorts. At its peak, some 2,000 blacks are said to have lived in the Sticks, a slum owned not by Flagler, but by brothers Edward R. and John R. Bradley. As the years went on, most of their tenants were either single men or heads of households who stayed in the shantytown during the work week but whose families lived in better neighborhoods to the West. Eventually, the white powers that be decided the growing eyesore had to go. Newspaper clippings from the early 1900s show an effort by local business and political leaders 
to have the tent city closed on sanitary grounds. Eviction notices were issued, and by 1912, the entire population was asked to leave. But how exactly it was shut down remains a point of heated debate. The Legend Flagler's henchmen burned out anyone who didn't budge. As the story goes, he brought a carnival to town and provided free tickets to all of his black employees emptying the compound. When the residents returned, their homes were in embers and they had no choice but to find another place to live. A century later, that's the accepted account of events for many in Palm Beach County. And with his book, The Sticks, author Jonathan King gave cover to those believing the worst. King's novel, published by Middle River Press in 2009, accepts the premise that The Sticks was burned to the ground, although he admits his thesis employed a healthy amount of creative license. Thing is, fires were common in those days of potbelly stoves and open hearths. A shanty town like the Sticks would have been especially vulnerable. At the time, there were numerous fires around the island, including at some of the fancy resorts that had nothing to do with arson, Debbie Murray said. Jonathan King will continue here, saying, I never found a news report or came across any actual documentation of the fire. It's a work of fiction. It is folklore. It is a myth. But I think it could have happened just in stages. Willie Miller, 36, a fifth-generation Palm Beach County resident, said his great-aunt, Inez Peppers Lovett, lived in the sticks, remembered no fire, and said she left of her own accord. Her characterization of the Styx's demise ran so counter to everything Miller had heard outside of his family, he felt compelled to sift through old newspaper clippings himself in an effort to determine the truth. All the written accounts he found supported his aunt's benign version of events. Just one of the many holes Miller found in the theory. If 2,000 people were burned out of their homes, there would have been mass homelessness. But in the newspaper archives, there was no mention of such a phenomenon. Miller said, There's a lot of evidence that refutes it, but none that supports it. It's character assassination of that man and needs to stop. Debbie Murray isn't betting on that happening anytime soon. Both the Historical Society and Palm Beach-based publications have written extensively over the years in hopes of disposing of the story, but it persists. Debbie Murray adds, Urban legends are stronger than facts. And this definitely is a very strong urban legend. It is a strong urban legend, and maybe one that is supported by Palm Beach's continuing lack of diversity. I mean, this town has its trash picked up daily. The newspaper won't stain your hands. We have heard all the demographic data of who lives in Palm Beach and how much money they have. It is a high society set, the real Palm Beaches, and they have been doing it this way for a very, very long time. Palm Beach will stay exclusive in its development through the years, 
After the hotels are built, the private homes start getting built and they get grander and grander. People are coming in, you know there's going to be clubs. So many private clubs and wowza, they get pretty exclusive in Palm Beach, cutting across very certain lines. From the women of Palm Beach, Dominic Dunn will write a little bit more about these clubs. From our man Nick. The grand lady stared down at the dessert plate that had been placed in front of her by the maid, lifted off the spoon and fork, and transferred the finger bowl and doily from the plate to the table. You see, she went on, Palm Beach, I mean the real Palm Beach, is behind walls and very private, and that's why none of you people who come down here to write about it ever get it right. In the swell houses on South Ocean Boulevard, the living is indeed very swell, and being shown through the cool and elegant rooms and the grounds on a sort of privately conducted tour by the owner is part of each visit. In one, a butler in a well-tailored white jacket and white gloves stood at the end of a chintz-upholstered drawing room, a presence but not a participant, waiting to replenish drinks and hors d'oeuvres while we talked. On the wall hung, as there hangs on the wall of almost every fashionable house here, a portrait of the lady of the house, painted by Alejo Vidal Quadras, the resident Boldini of Palm Beach. Who is Alejo Vidal Quadras Viega? Born in April of 1919, very high up. His family is in Barcelona. By the age of 22, Vidal Quadras has his first exhibition. And by the 1940s, he is getting commissioned work. Vidal Quadras is now a portraitist. He's also a pretty infamous host. He lives and paints in Paris in his studio in Montmartre, hosting many a famous folk, painting them too, including Italy's King Umberto and his daughters, Wallace, Duchess of Windsor, Princess Grace, and Prince Rainier of Monaco, as well as, oh my, so many from the world of entertainment, Anouka Mee, Audrey Hepburn, Sir Arthur Rubenstein, Maria Callas, Marilyn Monroe, Yul Brenner. Others include industrialist Gianni Agnelli, socialite Gloria Guinness. Alejo Vidal Quadras is a big deal. His work gets around. If you are a high society lady, you want a Vidal Quadras painting. It is a big deal. He passes away in 1994 at the age of 75, but he would have been alive and painting during this Dominic Dunn 1986 time frame in Palm Beach. But again, Alejo Vidal Quadras has been playing in the high society world 40 years before this, again called the resident Boldini of Palm Beach. Dominic Dunn continues writing, Need I tell you what people talk about in resorts? asked my hostess of that day, reclining on a sofa beneath her Vidal Quadras portrait. The gardener didn't come. I hate my new maid. Who did you sit next to at Chessie's last night? I mean, it goes like that day in, day out. She has been coming to Palm Beach most of her life, as has her mother, who lives nearby. She sipped her Perrier water, declined an hors d'oeuvre with a shake of her head to the butler, and petted a King Charles Spaniel that had jumped up on the sofa next to her. 
Like everyone else, she lamented that Palm Beach was not the way it used to be. Where it is the way it used to be are the clubs. The clubs are where it happens. There are a lot of rules governing the clubs. There's a little bit of financial investment too. But the rule of thumb here for clubs is if you have to ask to join a club, you have not one bit of business being there. You must be invited. Dunn will continue writing. It's too bad about all those other people coming to Palm Beach, she said, lowering her voice, although she was in her own drawing room. You know, the 50%, but we never have to see them. That's what's so wonderful about the clubs. You can't even bring them there as a guest. You'd get a little letter in the mail if you did, and then, if you did it again, bye-bye membership in the bath and tennis. Those other people... The 50% she was talking about referred to what is most commonly called, quote-unquote, the Jewish thing, about which no one likes to commit himself, although it is a constant in conversation. One man told me Palm Beach is the only unabashedly WASP community left in the United States, but we're up front about it. Other people consider Palm Beach a bastion of anti-Semitism. Because the Bath and Tennis and the Everglades clubs are restricted, the rich Jews of Palm Beach are ineligible for membership. As David Marcus of the Miami Herald wrote last year in a series of articles on the private clubs which incensed many of the old guard, quote, No matter how wealthy, how prominent, or how impeccable their credentials, Jews are not welcome at these exclusive social institutions. Unquote. The feeling is that this sort of thing is better left unsaid. What makes the matter a constant source of beneath-the-surface acrimony is the so-called guest rule, and members of both clubs are divided in their feelings about it. While it nowhere states in the rules that Jews, blacks, or other ethnic minorities cannot come as guests of members, the guest rule at the Everglades states that members may not bring anyone they, quote, might reasonably believe would not be accepted as a member, unquote. Quite simply, this means that these clubs will not even permit a Jew to walk through the door as a guest of a member. There are endless stories of acutely embarrassing situations that have occurred when people have brought Jewish friends to the clubs and the friends have been asked to leave the golf course or the tennis courts, or the dining room. In one particularly irksome case, the head of the Palm Beach branch of an international company cannot bring the chairman of the board of the company to his clubs, even though the chairman of the board is a winter resident in Palm Beach. The Everglades Club was built in 1917 on 160 acres of prime real estate by Addison Meinsner the architect who developed the Palm Beach style, a rococo olio of Moorish, Spanish, and Italianate elements. Originally conceived as a convalescent home for mentally disturbed servicemen by the multimillionaire Paris Singer, a lover of Isadora Duncan and one of the 25 children of Isaac Merritt Singer, the sewing machine magnate, it was converted into a private social club two years later. An oil portrait of Paris Singer 
hangs inside the double doors past the members-only sign. Although it was Singer who restricted the membership of the club, Palm Beach legend has it that he himself was suspected of being Jewish. Herbert Bayard Swope Jr., a radio and television commenter and a member of the croquet set, says, On that rumor alone, Paris Singer wouldn't get into the club to see his own portrait today. That was Dominic Dunn writing about the Everglades. Let's go ahead and give you a little bit more information on the Everglades Club here. It will open as a private club in 1919. The Everglades has 25 members. That's what the club begins with two years later. Membership is closed at a limit of 500. Paris Singer, Addison Meisner, get together. Paris Singer's just seen this great piece of land. He's going to build a hospital for World War I servicemen. Its original iteration is that convalescent home. Again, two years later, it's now a swanky private club with a main clubhouse, eight villas, tennis clubs, a parking garage, and a yacht basin. The Everglades has been modernized through the years, and John Volk, important architect after Meinsner, comes in in the 1940s to make some improvements to the place. In 1980, the Everglades does get its landmark status. Back to Dominic Dunn's point here, the Everglades Club has been criticized for discrimination against Jewish people and black people. I am taking this straight from Wikipedia, friends. Sammy Davis Jr. was turned away at the door. According to socialite CZ Guest, she and her husband were temporarily suspended from the club after they brought Jewish guests. Who were those guests? Estee Lauder and her husband to a party at the Everglades in 1972. Joseph Kennedy resigned his membership in the early 1960s, quote, to avoid scrutiny for belonging to a club known for excluding African-American and Jewish people, unquote. As of 2014, there has never been an African-American member. According to 2009 President William Pennell, no African-American has ever applied. The club now has Jewish members, but how many is unknown because, according to Pennell, we don't ask. Pennell admitted in 2009 that he receives inquiries about whether a member can bring a Jewish guest. This is Pennell's quote, And I know that people have called me on the phone when I, in the first years, and said I have so-and-so guest in my house, He's the president of some big university. He's Jewish. Can I bring him to the Everglades Club? I say absolutely no problem at all. Anybody you have in your home or anybody that's a friend of yours, bring them. And they brought them and there had been no incident of any complaining or and no letters issued or no. I have many friends that are Jewish people that come to the club and they are welcome here and there's no problem with it. A little bit more. On the Everglades here, it is located on Worth Avenue, again opens in 1919. Amenities for the Everglades include golf, dining, tennis, croquet, and private parties. Members now of the Everglades are at least members from 1999. This is the latest breakdown I could find. 1,100 members, 
the initiation fee, at least in 1999, was $35,000. That number here varies depending on stock purchases. Annual dues were about $3,500. And to get in, again, remember, you have to be asked. There's no, hey, I'd like to apply to get in your club. But getting into the Everglades, applicants need two sponsors and must be known by three board members. Who's belonged to the Everglades Club? Guilford Dudley Jr., former ambassador to Denmark, the late Marshall Rinker, founder of Florida's biggest cement company, and Jose Pepe Fanjul, head of Florida's largest sugar-producing company. Got a little bit of an update from 2022. This is according to Racketsource.com. The equity initiation fee in the Everglades is now $60,000. The non-equity initiation fee is $35,000. Annual golf dues will cost you right over $10,000 a year. Maybe you don't want to play the golf. Maybe you just want a social membership. That's going to cost you too. $2,500 is the initiation fee for the social membership with annual dues coming right in under $1,000 for the social membership bit. Again, apparently, the Everglades now allows Jewish members, but the number is unknown. There is a don't ask, don't tell policy put in place as rumor has it. Back to Dunn writing here, because this is only one quick, quick sentence. A mile down the road is the Bath and Tennis Club facing the Atlantic. It was built in 1926 in the Meisner tradition. Let's expand on that one a bit more here about the Bath and Tennis. Originally established in 1924, the Bath and Tennis really exclusive. Who creates this club? E.F. Hutton and Marjorie Merriweather Post. The first club of the Bath and Tennis was located just south of the Breakers, but in 1926, architect Joseph Urban will build a new structure funded by club members on South Ocean Boulevard. The Bath and Tennis, really conveniently, this new location of the club is just south of that Hutton Merriweather home. You know it as Mar-Lago. The Bath and Tennis opens just in time in this new building for the 1927 season. With 85,000 square feet, it is a Mediterranean revival building, red tile roof, quite a spot. The Bath and Tennis is a hit. It goes on like this for quite a while until a bad storm comes in in 1947 in which massive restoration is needed. Again, welcome John Volk. Super big deal during this time. John Volk comes in to reinforce and restore the Bath and Tennis. The Bath and Tennis is one of the first landmarked properties in Palm Beach. There's another renovation that happens in 2008. Really, really exclusive, the Bath and Tennis. The only rates I can find are back from 1999. What would it cost to join the Bath and Tennis in 99? Initiation fee, $30,000. Annual dues, $3,400. Again, the amenities, though, what you get, dining, tennis, pool, kids programs, and private parties. Membership of the Bath and Tennis was 750 folks in 1999. 
and to get into the bath and tennis, you must have two sponsors who are current members. Who belongs to the bath and tennis? Let's see some of its famous members. Palm Beach Mayor Paul Ilyinsky, Mary Woolworth Donahue, department store heiress, CZ Guest, gardening columnist and widow of polo player Winston Frederick Churchill Guest. Remember, he is the second cousin of Winston Churchill and heir to the Phipps Steel Fortune. Dominic Dunn will continue writing about one more club. In the 1950s, the Jews founded their own club, the Palm Beach Country Club, where the initiation fee is reputed to be $50,000, higher than the initiation fee at either the Everglades or the Bath and Tennis, and the annual dues are $4,000. Eligibility for membership in this club is unique in that it has more to do with an applicant's recognized involvement with charitable contributions than with social standing, good schools, and the right connections. Members of the Palm Beach Country Club can bring Christians as guests, although there is only one Christian, Phil O'Connell Sr., among its 325 members. few quick facts on the Palm Beach Country Club back from 1999. Again, established in 1954, located on North Ocean Boulevard. Its amenities include golf, dining, tennis, and private parties. Back from 1999, its membership was capped at 350 folks. Its initiation fee in 1999, y'all, $100,000 plus. A former club officer at this time says, It's gone up, but I'd rather not say exactly. Annual dues will cost you $10,000 along with charitable donations. And to get in to the Palm Beach Country Club, applicants need two sponsors who are members. Again, this decision is based on community standing, philanthropy, and reputation. Who are some folks who belong to the Palm Beach Country Club? Oil man and philanthropist Max Fisher, as well as the late Oklahoma oil man Nathan Appleman. Exclusivity and privilege continue to be the way things roll in Palm Beach. It is its own kind of place where a certain few are accepted and welcomed, and it takes a certain pedigree and a certain bank account to have the money to play. The real Palm Beach is behind high stone walls and fences, very rarely glimpsed by the regular folk, at least in these exclusive clubs. Mar-a-Lago opening as a private club will shift the rules of the game a little bit. That story's coming into our Palm Beach Chronicles as we continue our journey this month on Done and Done. Thank you, thank you for listening today, for your time, for your awesome ears, for your support of our labor of love. You rock for telling your friends, for your kind emails and reviews. Big huge thanks to all of our Patreon community getting ad-free early episodes, bonus not done yet episodes too. We did one this week on Casa Alva, the love nest of Consuelo Vanderbilt Balsan and its history down on Manalapan. What a story happened in that home. Friends, thank you all so, so much until we meet again, which is going to be sooner than you may think. Stay curious and keep 
on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.